Hello and welcome to Foresight with me, Greg Williams. Today we're going to talk about quantum computing, a technology that can feel challenging to get a grip on, both conceptually and in terms of its practical applications. We're told that over the coming decades, quantum computers could transform medicine, break encryption and revolutionise communications and artificial intelligence. And we know that every large tech company and many startups are in a race to build reliable quantum computers and scale them into working machines. We also know that China has invested billions in quantum and that some people argue that this is a technology where there is no silver medal, that the gap between whoever wins and second place will be vast. Even the most bullish quantum enthusiasts acknowledge that quantum maturity will take many years, but we are beginning to see the emergence of an ecosystem of startups specialising in materials, software, the internet and hardware across a spectrum of research, prototype and product. So I'm keen to understand what the implications of all this are, the potential applications from drug discovery to the geopolitical impact and how the field will develop over the coming years and whether it really holds as much promise as we're led to believe. So the question we're addressing today is, to some degree, a fairly straightforward one. What is quantum computing and what does it mean for all of us? To answer that question, I'm delighted to welcome Jeremy O'Brien to the podcast. Jeremy is the CEO of PsyQuantum, a startup based in California that claims to be building the world's first useful quantum computer. Formerly a professor of physics and electrical engineering at Stanford and director of the Center for Quantum Photonics at the University of Bristol, Jeremy has announced that PsyQuantum will have built a quantum computer with 1 million qubits, the minimum number deemed necessary for a commercial system, within a handful of years. And intriguingly, the company is taking a different approach to many others in the field by focusing on photonics, the science of light waves, which it claims has significant technical advantages over other approaches. He'll explain more about this during our conversation. Before we get into this, I should note that as part of the Wired and Penguin Random House book series, my colleague Amit Katwala has written an excellent guide to quantum computing. I'd really highly recommend it if you're looking for a thorough, detailed but readable beginner's guide to the world of quantum. There's a link to it in the programme notes. Now on to the conversation with Jeremy from PsyQuantum. Well, Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us. So I'd really like to start with and apologies, it's a high level question, but I think it would really help for everyone listening to just to get a real sense of like, from your perspective, how quantum computing really differs from classical computing and, and why should everyone listening be, be so excited about it? Yeah, that is indeed the question to ask as far as I'm concerned. And I think to understand the difference between uh, quantum computing and any other technology is um, firstly to appreciate that it's got almost nothing to do with computing. I think quantum computing uh, really suffers from having that word computing in the title. And although, yes, it is a type of computer, yes, it is a faster computer, it's exponentially faster, and that means it takes problems that are otherwise forever impossible and makes them possible. And so sometimes I like to use the analogy that, you know, quantum computing is to conventional computing what a warp drive that enables intergalactic travel is to conventional transport. Sure, you could lump it in and say, yep, they're all just modes of transport. But if I've got a warp drive that enables me to travel to distant galaxies, probably think of that as something completely different from a, you know, aeroplane or a bus or a bicycle. Sure. Okay. So it's it, it, effectively, it's just something that 
massively changes the way that we think about computing. But again, you, you said you, you're not, you're, 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 you think that the word computing in there is, is maybe not helpful to people understanding how different this is. Yeah, I mean, it, it categorically is a computer and it computes and there are a lot of parallels with uh, conventional computing. But I think that the, the reason, and I'm, I'm sort of half joking when I say it suffers from having the word computing in it, but I'm also half serious. And the serious part is that I think if you have that word quantum computing, you, you, you tend to sort of think, okay, this is just a super fast computer or the next generation of computing or the next big thing in computing or something. And it really isn't that. It's something entirely different in that it's really taking these problems of huge importance across pretty much every aspect of human endeavor that are otherwise forever going to remain impossible. So even if, you know, Moore's law marched on for centuries into the future and we turned the entire planet into a giant supercomputer, we still wouldn't be able to solve large instances of exponentially hard problems, some of which we understand how to solve on a quantum computer. So there are so many, well, not so many, but there are, there are very different approaches to quantum computing. Um, maybe kind of like the, the next step in, in this conversation is if you can give us just a, an overview of, of what these different approaches are. Yeah, that's, uh, that's also, uh, I think, a, a really interesting distinction between um, conventional computing. Of course, if you go far enough back in history, there were also different sort of many different physical instantiations of conventional computing. Uh, and, and right now, quantum computing is in that, uh, that sort of phase where there are many different ways that uh, people are pursuing uh, to make a quantum computer. And essentially, uh, you know, any system that you can get some level of control over uh, and exhibits quantum mechanical behavior is a potential candidate. And so people are looking at everything from, uh, you know, superconducting circuits, uh, atomic systems, iron traps, uh, you know, semiconductor quantum dots, um, and so the list goes on. And, and the approach that we're uh, uh, developing at PsyQuantum is one where we encode, rather than in, in, in those uh, uh, matter-based approaches where, you know, at, at their heart, those systems are encoding in electrons, just as we do in a, in a conventional uh, computer at its most fundamental level. It's an encoding in, in uh, the flow of electrons. Um, what we do is we encode in photons, so single particles of light. And indeed, that is also the encoding that we use for telecommunications uh, in, in today's um, uh, communication systems. And what's the advantage of that, that approach in particular, Jeremy? Yeah, well, that, um, that is really where I ended up at the, you know, I've been in quantum computing for about 25 years. Um, and I've, you know, had my hands on, you know, many different matter-based uh, approaches, you know, gallium-arsenide, quantum dots, I've made, you know, superconducting devices, um, you know, phosphorus donor spin qubits in silicon, um, et cetera, et cetera, and, um, you know, NV centers in diamond and so on. And the whole way through that journey, what I was searching for is a path whereby we could leverage the uh, semiconductor industry and the, you know, the 50 years of development that went into that and the trillion dollars of investment and repurpose that uh, to deliver a quantum computer. Because it has been my conviction uh, for those, you know, for, for, you know, the better part of those 25 years that until we figure out how to do that, until we figure out how to leverage the semiconductor industry, we won't have quantum computing uh, in my lifetime. And this photonic approach um, 
that uh, that we are developing, I believe, um, is unique in being able to uh, in, in, in being able to leverage that, and that's and that's why we're pursuing it. So there are kind of lots of different players, obviously, in this space. We have you know Google and Microsoft and IBM, these very large organizations. Numbers of startups, of course, academics. Can you just give us a sense of of, of, the, of the landscape, if you don't mind, please? Yeah, you're right. I think there are, um, uh, you know, there's a large number of research groups around the world. So it's it's funny, you know, I feel like an old old man, and that's probably because I am. Um, but uh, you know, when I when I first learned about quantum computing back in um, the mid '90s, uh, I then went on a sort of hunt to you know do a PhD in the topic, and that was next to impossible. And now yeah. I think it's probably the case that many uh, physics departments. Um, in particular, but also electrical engineering, computer science, mathematics departments around the world are dominated, um, uh, maybe not dominated, but there's certainly large activities in research. Um, you know, I, I, th I think it would not be unusual to find a physics department where maybe, let's say, a third of the graduate students or a quarter of the graduate students were working on quantum computing, quantum technologies and associated um, activities. And so it's grown uh, globally to become a very big activity indeed in, in academia. And uh, as you highlight the, um, the you know, uh, large corporations, particularly tech corporations, but uh, are, are pursuing their own sort of hardware approaches. And then other corporations are also have, uh, you know, fr from, you know, automotive manufacturers to, you know, to financial organizations have their own internal teams who more often than not are not developing the hardware, but are figuring out exactly how to do it. So they have PhDs in quantum computing who are figuring out how they're going to use this technology for their businesses. And would it be fair to say just that characterization, you know, 25 years in quantum, is that shift now to, you know, maybe 30% of, you know, departments, physics departments, having people working on quantum in them, is that attributable to the fact that it's may be moved from being theoretical to clearly kind of practical? Um, and that's that's the kind of like the the direction of travel. Yeah, I think that that is a is a fair uh, you know a fair assessment that there's been a sort of steady march uh, towards you know a, a real you know technology and product. Um, and indeed, you know these these ideas started as you know fairly nebulous. I you know sort of well, it sounds like it could be possible. You know, firming up theoretically. Um, I think for me, one of the big breakthroughs was, you know, the fault tolerance threshold that tells you that you can correct for errors and therefore make a useful quantum computer. That was really a, a big, land, you know, other than the original idea of, you know, a, a quantum computer and, you know, it's so on. This, this is the sort of theoretical step that means that it's in principle uh, practical. And then following that, there were sort of many, uh, you know, works and efforts to think about, well, how would we actually instantiate such a, a device, you know, what sorts of systems would we have under control that would enable us to do that? And that led to what we started this conversation with, with this sort of, um, you know, spectrum of uh, different, um, you know, uh, approaches, which, you know, span almost all of, um, you know, experimental quantum physics, um, not quite particle physics, but, you know, or cosmology, but indeed some of the tools from those uh, areas of, of uh, experimental physics are deployed. But, you know, atomic and molecular physics, semiconductor physics, um, and, and so it goes, are all, uh, you know, included in, in the mix. And then, 
you know, that, that there's been a steady march from people, you know, for, for example, in uh, 1999, people demonstrated NEC, in fact, in Japan, with a superconducting uh, circuit demonstrated, you know, coherent oscillations of that circuit. So the the, 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 the real sort of evidence of a, of a qubit, single qubit behavior, and then, you know, some years later, a two qubit gate. And so, you know, so that march uh, went on. But, you know, for me personally, um, it was always about, okay, you know, we've got to do that. We've got to figure out, you know, what, what are the qubits, what are the gates and so on. But let's look to what's really required to deliver a useful technology. And the answer has always been, well, you need about a million qubits plus to do that. That means you need a very large scale system. What are the challenges to scaling? And those challenges are, in fact, you know, largely have nothing to do with quantum physics or qubits or anything like that. They're system engineering type challenges. Right. And, and I, I think that it would be great now if just to get into, if you could just kind of talk a little bit about the, the hardware side of this. We've seen these amazing images of these, you know, quantum computers. Um, can you talk a little bit about that kind of that physical side of, of, of the work that's being done in order to move this field forward? Yeah. So um, as as we were discussing earlier, lots of diff different types of you know physical instantiation. So um, you see lots of images of um, you know superconducting uh, circuits uh, sitting at the bottom of uh, dilution refrigerators, cooling them to tens of millikelvin. That's a very popular uh, type of approach. Uh, iron traps where you take um, you know single atoms, uh, you ionize them by removing an electron so that they're charged, and then you trap those charged. Uh, ions uh, using electromagnetic fields and address them with lasers and or with um, um, you know uh, microwave electromagnetic fields um, semiconductor quantum dots in all sorts of different semiconductor materials where again you're typically cooling them to millikelvin temperatures there you're often uh, addressing them uh, with again with microwave uh, uh, pulses um, you know single you know any sort of single uh, quantum system where you have some levers to be able to control it presents an opportunity for a qubit and then you know you need to be able to get interactions between them and so on so there's actually a lot of sort of a lot of different types of you know physics laboratory type of uh, um, kit represented across all of those uh, different approaches and the one that um, uh, the one that we're working on which I can tell you about in in, in detail is that silicon photonics one so encoding in uh, single particles of light um, those uh, single particles of light, single photons, they propagate through waveguides on a silicon chip. Those waveguides are very much like um, uh, optical fibers that are etched into a into a silicon uh, into a silicon chip. And then, you know, if you have a pair of waveguides, then you know which of the two waveguides the photon is in encodes the zero and the one. It's a pretty simple idea, but it's one that has really profound implications in terms of that. Uh, manufacturability as well as uh, these larger uh, scaling issues that I that I'd be happy to talk about in in a bit of detail as well. That's great. Yeah, I'd love to get into that. And I guess sort of you know in terms of the genesis of this, we're sort of seeing you know um, increases in the number of qubits. Um, you're attempting to build a, a quantum computer with, with a million qubits. Can you just talk a little bit about that challenge and and, and how you're uh, how you think about it and how you're proceeding? Yeah, absolutely. So um, you're right. I mean, it's you're a right. huge, it's a huge task, right? I mean, it's it uh... is indeed. Yeah, and and I've, as I say, I've been on a 25 year mission um, to do that, and 
together with my three co-founders, um, when we uncovered a path to that uh, million qubit regime, that's when we founded this company. And I guess the four of us had spent, you know, a combined 60 years in university research and, you know, physics and electrical engineering departments, um, the last decade or so uh, in the UK, in fact, all four of us. Um, and we were on, we were on a, a mission to, to figure out a path uh, whereby we could deliver uh, a million qubit system because, you know, we, like many others, um, uh, you know, we, we understood that, yeah, really the, 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 the promised land of quantum computing is in that million qubit error corrected uh, regime. And, um, you know, we had done, in fact, some of the early work on, on you know, um, on uh, boson sampling, um, a kind of implementation of quantum supremacy. Um, we had, you know, co-invented the variational quantum eigensolver with our colleagues uh, at Harvard and implemented that on a chip. So we'd done a lot of this work in that sort of small, noisy system regime, had had an exploration of that and really concluded that, yeah, it, it, it's got to be a million qubits. And I think that what, what's interesting is it's, it's, you, you know, as I look back on that 25 years, that's really been the, the, the status quo for the whole time. Yeah, you really need a million qubits. And then over the last five or six years, there's been, you know, a lot of, you know, I, I would say unwarranted, actually, enthusiasm for these sort of small noisy systems with, you know, 100 to 1000 qubits and the sort of hope that maybe we can find something useful uh, to do there. So far, no one has found anything useful to do there. Uh, and indeed, you know, I was at an event um, at the White House uh, a few weeks ago with sort of representation of, you know, all of the major quantum computing efforts uh, um, in in the US, which indeed represents, you know, certainly a majority of the major quantum computing efforts in the world, indeed. Um, and now it's, it's really clear a vast majority of people are saying exactly that, you know, to do anything useful in a quantum computer requires a million plus qubits. There's still a couple of people holding out hope for, you know, a small noisy uh, application. So far, they don't uh, exist. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it's looking, you know, increasingly unhopeful on that front. So yes, we founded a company uh, exclusively targeted on that million plus qubit regime, because that was our understanding. And I think if you went back five or six years, and you held that same event, we would have been the probably the lone or at least a lonely voice in the room saying that you needed a million qubits. Um, so we're very glad that we that we did indeed set out on that, you know, that grandest of challenges to a, uh, a million qubit regime, uh, because that really is what's what's required uh, for all of these useful applications. And of course, you know, that's that's a that's a very different kind of um, regime from, you know, whether you have 20, 50, 100 qubits probably not so relevant if you need a million uh, qubits. It's, you know, the, the analogy is sort of, well, you know, if, you, if you're going to get to the moon, you're going to need to build a rocket engine and a rocket fuselage and, you know, a control system and all that sort of thing. And, you know, building a taller and taller, you know, ladder is, okay, it's getting you closer to the moon, but it's ultimately not going to get you there. And I think that's the sort of top-down, bottom-up sort of approach, you know, incrementing up uh, in, in numbers of qubits. I don't think it's necessarily a way to, to get you into that regime. And that's why, as I said at the start, it's really for, for us, and I believe any, uh, any delivery of a million qubit machine requires leveraging that, that semiconductor 
industry. So figuring out how to sort of repurpose that uh, extraordinary manufacturing capability uh, for delivering a, a quantum computer. Um, so let me pause there because I've been going on for quite a bit and see, uh, see if I'm still making <laughs> no, no, sense. No, there's just a lot to unpack. It's, it's great. A um, couple of questions that immediately kind of come to mind. Um, one is you, you talked about your work on, on and, and I want to come back to the qubits uh, straight after this, but just just for to, to help listeners out because there, there is still sort of so much kind of um, – there's so many terms in quantum that I think are, are worth having explained by, by, by someone like yourself. You talked about your work in, in quantum supremacy. Can you just explain what quantum supremacy means and, and how it's achieved, please? Absolutely. Um, so quantum supremacy is uh, just a really dumb name uh, coined by a very brilliant colleague uh, of mine, John Preskill at Caltech. And I think probably he and, and, and the field probably regret the terminology. But the, the, the uh, important point is that that is uh, a demonstration of a quantum system uh, that cannot be simulated on a conventional computer. And so the first um, report of that was by Google in 2019 with a 53 qubit system. So a, a thumbnail sized system of 53 superconducting qubits did something that couldn't be done on the world's fastest supercomputer, which is a multi warehouse, you know, multi aircraft hangar sized, you know, mega uh, compute system. And you can appreciate just what a important um, landmark uh, that is from a scientific perspective. Um, and I think part of the challenge for, for you know, maybe for, for your listeners and, and, and people out there in the world who aren't in, in the field of quantum computing, which is the majority of the world's population, <laughs> uh, is that um, you might naturally think that, okay, we're there, you know, we have quantum computing and, and, you know, all this wonderful stuff follows, but it turns out that no one has found uh, anything useful to do uh, in that regime of, you know, quantum supremacy. And the other, the other kind of term that gets thrown around is NISQ, uh, N-I-S-Q, noisy intermediate scale quantum. And that's just a sort of catch all for that, you know, hundred to thousand qubit regime where, you know, you don't implement error correction. So you've got, you've got qubits, uh, and you can implement a small sort of set of gates on them before that noise comes to sort of swamp the, the signal. And that's the sort of where, where there has been over the last five or six years, a lot of hope that uh, someone could find something useful to do in that regime. Um, and so far, I haven't. So that's quantum supremacy and NISC. And then, you know, quantum computing uh, in the sort of large scale error corrected regime is where you you know, you have of order a million qubits, a million plus qubits from which you distill around a hundred, maybe several hundred logical error corrected and therefore, you know, guaranteed to be useful qubits. And that's the regime that, that we have been focused on um, exclusively. And it's also the regime um, where I would say, you know, it, it's it's just unequivocal, like, there is huge value uh, in, in, in that regime. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of a map of the, of the landscape there. Yeah, no, that's, that, that's great. Thank you. And, and, and I guess you, know, you mentioned, that, was it the 53 qubits for quantum supremacy, the Google computer? Um, I feel like there's constant announcements in this space. Just last night when I was thinking about talking to you, I kind of saw uh, the IBM 
uh, announcement about its 127 qubit quantum computer, um, which is apparently double the size of comparable machines made by Google and by the University of Science and Technology in China. So I'd love to, to sort of from the perspective of where you're trying to get to with, with the million qubits, where are we in the, the genesis of this, of this technology? Are we, we in the foothill still or, or are we beyond that now, do you think? Yeah, well, I, I think we're, we're in the regime where it's, you know, it's unequivocal that, um, you know, quantum computers uh, at scale, so at that million qubit scale, will be truly world-changing technologies. I, I would even contend, and I'm far from alone in this, I think large-scale error-corrected quantum computing in that million-plus qubit regime uh, will be the most profoundly world-changing technology that humans have uncovered to date. And I'd love to uh, I'd love to talk to you about you know exactly what uh, you know what changes might be brought by that technology. And as you say, we're in the, we're, we're in the sort of hundred qubit regime at the moment globally. And you know, give or take, you know, various different organisations, you know, making announcements about various different numbers and so on. But essentially, we're in that sort of hundred qubit regime. Um, and clearly, that's uh, that's well short of the million qubit regime that you need to be in for those uh, useful applications. And so the way I would sort of characterize it is that the qubit problem is solved, you know, like everyone can make qubits. My grandma can make qubits. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm of course completely joking, but the point is that, you know, back, back when I started out, um, you know, that's when people were sort of starting to make qubits and, you know, then do one qubit gates and two qubit gates. Now it's, you know, in, in all of the sort of leading platforms, you know, you can, make qubits, you can make gates, you can make small scale systems with, you know, maybe a dozen, maybe a few dozen uh, qubits and run small scale sort of proof of principle algorithms that give you, you know, real confidence that you've got a handle on how things work and, and all the rest of it. And I think the only question uh, that, that really needs to be answered is how do you get to that million qubit uh, regime? And, you know, how far away is that? You know, like what's the time frame from getting there? And as far as the hardware goes, but then I think, you know, you know, the, the average person wants to know, and, and what will that mean? Like what, what changes yeah. will be wrought on the world? Because, you know, if you look at the analogy, you know, you and I are both holding mobile phones in our hand and, you know, there's, there's plenty of people, um, uh, you know, using those devices who don't understand how one of the many billions of transistors in those things work because, it's not really important to understand how they work. What's important is what are the implications for for my life and and for the world. Right. Well, let's let's dig into that. I mean, what what do you think the kind of the primary implications are going to be? Well, I think that uh, you know quantum computing promises to have a you know huge impact across pretty much every uh, you know aspect of you know human endeavor, every existing industry. Indeed, you know we're working with um, customers across you know the aerospace automotive, finance, pharmaceutical, uh, you name it, uh, industries. And, you know, these uh, organizations increasingly have their own uh, team of quantum computing people. They increasingly have a, a really sophisticated understanding of, um, you know, how they're going to use this technology to transform their business and, and their industry. And one of the areas that, you know, I'm particularly uh, focused on is sustainability and uh, climate change. Um, and the reason for that is that, well, it's probably the most urgent uh, challenge that we face. Um, and it's one where, you know, one, one, of the, one of the sort of foundational things that a quantum computer will be able to do is unlock uh, our ability to do chemistry. 
and that's underpinning of many applications in climate change as well as you know materials chemicals pharmaceutical industry and so on you know it, at some sort of hierarchical you know abstract level everything ultimately requires a chemical explanation um, whether that thing and, is and, a, and every biological thing absolutely, absolutely. right absolutely. Yeah. everything that pre-exists in the world whether that's you know out there in the environment in my body you know every biomolecule and so on everything that we might hope to engineer and so on and you know we humans i believe we fall into this sort of trap of thinking that we live in a a really advanced uh, technological age which of course is a natural thing to do unless you're you know a, a post roman empire uh, you know middle age you know looking looking at uh, you know roman ro ro roman roads and roman ruins or something it's a very natural thing to do because you can look at the you know computer history museum or the museum of um, you know uh, medicine and think wow you know like you really cut people uh, people's skulls open with uh, you know carpentry saws and drills and so on and I believe that if we're going to, you know, uh, sort of sustain ourselves, never mind thrive at the sort of population levels that we're, that we're at, at now, we're going to need to look back on today and look at our current best technology and think, oh, isn't that cute? You know, like we've got this, this phone with its chassis and its dedicated little battery thing and so on. Um, and I think that's, uh, you know, true across many, many things that, that we do. And the, 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 the reason that quantum computing is going to have such a profound impact here is because it totally transforms the way we can, we, we can interact with the, you know, the existing physical world and the physical world that we're you know, creating and manip manipulating around us because it opens up the ability to simulate that chemistry. At the moment, what we're doing with chemistry is we're sort of just doing an ad hoc, you know, trial and error type of flying blind, you know, hope and, and see what happens type of approach. Um, my sort of provocation that I, you know, I'm happy to give to professors of chemistry and they're usually very happy to acknowledge it is that we can't in fact even really do chemistry until we've got a quantum computer. And it sounds a bit outrageous because, you know, we've you know, been doing chemistry in you know, a modern way for a century plus, but it is true in the sense that um, if you can't simulate the building blocks of the natural world that you find around you or the building blocks of the systems that that you know you're engineering yourself that's pretty tough that's a pretty funny business it's like trying to build a you know a state-of-the-art supersonic aircraft without the aid of a conventional computer and the sort of cartoon in my head is you know guys in a blacksmith's workshop hammering and tonging and out pops an f-35 that's what we're trying to do uh with chemistry in you know in the pharmaceutical industry is a good great example where you know, they, they have the resources, you know, if they could solve this problem, they would have solved this problem, but it happens to be, you know, impossible to solve without a quantum computer being able to simulate those, uh, you know, the, 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 the um, molecules that serve as pharmaceuticals, as well as the molecules that they interact with, as well as that hierarchy of, you know, biochemistry and uh, biology and, and so on. So that's a, a little bit of a rambling flavor of, of uh, one sort of domain of, of really important underpinnings and as i say that sustainability part of things is is one where i think there's huge potential from you know designing more efficient batteries solar cells a catalyst that you could cheaply and easily mass produce to you know suck gigatons of carbon out of the atmosphere turn it into something useful like a fuel or a plastic or a material or something essentially to get sort of mastery over the the physical world at that fundamental um you know, molecular 
scale. And um, you know, we urgently, you know, we urgently need to do that with, uh, I would say, uh, you know, climate change, healthcare, energy. So, so the list goes on. Yeah, I, I think that the, the, maybe one of the misunderstandings about quantum is that it's just going to be. Uh, it just means that we're going to basically be accelerating the things that we do we're doing already. So, for instance, you know, we're using AI for drug discovery. What you're describing is something far more fundamental than that. That's you're, you're describing something where we understand the physical and chemical world in entirely new ways that we probably can't even imagine right now, right? You, you're exactly right. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's it's really it's really it's really not just you know more more and better and faster and so on. It's just a complete shift of things that are otherwise Im- impossible and turning them into uh, becoming possible. You're, you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a complete transformation. And some of those things we, we can imagine. Uh, so for example, um, you know, the analogies, are, well, just as we, you know, at some point in designing modern aircraft, we, um, you know, we stopped using wind tunnels with um, scale models and replaced that with, you know, a bank of supercomputers running MATLAB simulations of those, uh, of those yeah. systems. Um, in the future, we'll stop sort of randomly mixing compounds together with robot arms in some dark lab somewhere uh, in the hope that we might chance upon some new compound that we could deploy for a pharmaceutical. That's the industry that, you know, has has the resources to do it. But of course, we want those m- new materials, not just for, you know, healthcare, but for all, all aspects of, of our lives. And it's, it's turning that sort of, um, you know, real... You know, the, the way I sort of think about it is the, the way we're doing things today is sort of like flailing around in the dark with a blindfold on, constrained to this cave that is just a, a tiny subset of this entire possibility. You know, there's, we've got this le- Lego set, right, the periodic table of elements that we can put together in an infinity of ways, right, like to, for all sorts of purposes. Nature, by the way, of course, has taken a different approach called evolution and over billions of years, it's learned how to perform miracles with chemistry, including life, right? Including, you know, you and me in this conversation that, that we're having. Um, so we know that extraordinary things are possible with chemistry, right? That's the, that's the sort of proof positive thing here. And I, I could give you a really specific example that, that might be interesting on, on, on that front if you're, if you're interested. In, yes, please, please do, yeah. You know, it's, it's this example of, um, of, uh, of uh, nitrogen-based uh, fertilizer. So you may have come across this and some of your listeners may have too, but I really like it because it, it, it really speaks to, um, you know, the constraints that we're under without quantum computing and sort of speaks to what, uh, what could become possible with quantum computing. So, you know, the story goes that depending on how organic your diet is, the, you know, the, the up to 50% of the nitrogen in your body, of which there's a lot, Nitrogen is the fourth most abundant element in your body, um, you know, after carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. Um, and it's very abundant, right? Like the, the air is, you know, 70, 80% uh, nitrogen. So there's plenty of it around. It's very, very strongly bonded molecules. Very, uh, it's just effectively an inert N2 molecule because it's so strongly bonded. And so you can't breathe nitrogen into your, into your body and, and, and access it that way. Um, you get it. You, you get it through the food that you eat, and the food that you eat gets it uh, in modern agriculture through ammonia fertilizer. So it gets nitrogen through ammonia uh, fertilizer, and we we couldn't feed probably half the world's population without that ammonia-based fertilizer. And we figured out how to make that fertilizer 
in a, in, in a so-called Haber-Bosch Haber process that was invented around 1910. Today, uh, that production of ammonia, which is, you know, ammonia, of course, is a feedstock for, you know, uh, cleaning products, pharmaceuticals, all sorts of things, but it's predominantly used for fertilizer. And production of ammonia consumes a few percent of the world's energy production and a few percent of the world's natural gas production. And we use the, the, the natural gas to get hydrogen. So it's, you know, natural gas is pretty volatile and you can get the hydrogen out of it. And then you use the energy to create high temperature, high pressure reaction vessels, which enable you to uh, break apart that uh, nitrogen bond and turn, you know, nitrogen in, in nitrogen N2 molecules and hydrogen from uh, natural gas and turn it into NH3 ammonia. And the energy is used for the high temp, you know, for maintaining that high temperature and the high pressure. So there's a really good um, economic reason why you'd want to do better than that because it's consuming a lot of, a lot of uh, energy and a lot of natural gas. And of course, water also contains plenty of hydrogen in it, but again, it's very strongly bonded molecule a water molecule and getting the hydrogen out of it requires a lot of a lot of energy but we haven't done better over more than a century despite that economic imperative an increasingly environmental imperative for doing better and we haven't done better despite knowing for sure that there is a better way of doing it because there are bacteria in the soil that are doing that same thing at ambient conditions not at high temperature not at high pressure and that's the that's nature's uh, solution to the problem right is over over you know billions of years nature has evolved uh you know enzymes in those bacteria that can take uh nitrogen from the atmosphere uh uh hydrogen from from water in the environment and you know in a you know, sort of symbiotic relationship with with plants provide that fertilization so we know it's possible and yet we can't solve the problem and so i really like that example because you know we, we, we think, again, we think we're doing, you know, really sophisticated things in chemistry. You think you're doing something sophisticated. Have you had a look at what the natural world is doing in chemistry? It's doing things that actually blow your mind. Not, not that should blow your mind. They actually blow our minds when we stop to think about it. And that's just one very concrete example. But of course, the whole human body, the whole natural world is a chemical process extraordinaire, right? And if you can't, you know, we, we, we're never going to be, you know, we can't, we don't understand how that, um, you know, how that bacteria does that chemistry, right? Like we kind of have an inkling, we kind of know which part of the nitrogenase enzyme does that work, but we can't uh, understand it and we'll never be able to simulate it on any conventional computer. And that's just one very specific example. And I like it, as I say, because it's sort of at the intersection of agriculture and energy, molecular simulation, it's very concrete. You know, we, we should have it, you know, we do indeed have a, I, I met someone uh, the other day who did a PhD long ago on, trying to come up with a better uh, catalyst for that uh, process. So, yeah, I think it's a, it's a pretty interesting one, but I want to emphasize that it's just one of, you know, a multitude of such examples. And, and just quickly, that CO2 catalyst is an analogous type of thing, a catalyst that could take CO2 out of the atmosphere and turn it into something useful. It's the same sort of chemistry that would underpin that, the same sort of uh, catalyst that you would want to do that. So we're right up against time, Jeremy, but I'd love to just ask you one final question, which is just look forward to the next, I don't know, 10 years in quantum. Like, what do you think it's going to look like um, in terms of its development? What are your hopes? Well, I'm, I'm really uh, convinced that, you know, by the end of this decade, uh, we will have developed, um, you know, that sort of large scale error corrected system and be 
uh, already seeing the impact in these most uh, important domains across, uh, you know, sustainability, energy, healthcare. And I think that's only possible as a result of this, um, you know, focus on that million qubits and the fact that we're able to leverage uh, the semiconductor industry to bring that about. That puts us on a very uh, short time frame. And if, you know, if we hadn't uncovered that path, I would still be a professor of physics and electrical engineering happily sitting there wondering how on earth could we build a million qubit quantum computer? And then, you know, as of uh, whatever it is, five, six years ago, we figured that out. And uh, now we're now we're on we're on a course to doing that. And that's uh, super exciting, as, as you could imagine. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us here at Foresight. It's been so great talking to you because the passion and the excitement of your work really comes through. So thank you so much. And everyone's going to be looking forward to uh, hearing what comes next in quantum now. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. Real pleasure to chat to you.